Our speaker is Peter O'Leary, who teaches at both the School of the Art Institute at Chicago and here at the University of Chicago. Uh, Professor O'Leary is the author of several books of poetry, most recently The Sampo, a book-length fantasy poem set in the far north featuring a wizard, a sorceress, a sword, and a mysterious magical object of absorbing perfection. And he's also written a new book of criticism, Thick and Dazzling Darkness, Religious Poetry in a Secular Age. Uh, both of these books are available for sale uh, out in the hall. Uh, tonight's lecture is also entitled Thick and Dazzling Darkness. Uh, so I imagine like the book, it will be about the existence and importance of religious poetry in 20th and 21st century American literature. Uh, perhaps it'll help us to think about questions like uh, how do poets use language to render the transcendent, often dizzyingly inexpressible nature of the div divine? In an age of secularism, does spirituality have a place in modern American poetry? These are both questions that the dust jacket informs me this book is about. Uh, I'm excited to hear more, and I hope that you are also. Uh, so please help me to welcome Professor Peter O'Leary. Thanks very much for that introduction. Um, Thanks as well to um, Thomas and Mark and everybody at Lumen Christi for inviting me uh, to come talk to you this afternoon. I'm really happy to be here, um, not least because it's a little bit of a homecoming for me. This is where I went to graduate school and I feel like the ideas, I hope the ideas that I'm going to talk about with you uh, maybe took shape many years ago while I was here. Um, provide an example of how to move forward with some of those ideas, perhaps. So um, what I'm going to do this afternoon is um, just provide a, a brief little orientation into, um, into the book, Thick and Dazzling Darkness, and then an anthology of four of the poets that I talk about in the book. I'll give some context and um, read some examples, read some, some, uh, some samples of their poems uh, for kicks. So uh, it'll, give you, it'll give you a good, uh, good sense of what the book is like. <clears throat> it is, you know, it's an academic book in that it was published by an academic publisher, but um, my, my critical style is, I'd like to think, very personable. Um, Similar to this jacket, perhaps. <laughs> like, think of it that way. Formal, but, you know, look at that. Yeah, That's like, yeah. not bad. That was for my friend Victoria. <clears throat> and I can begin now that Jeremy Biles is here. So we're, we're good. So here's the description in the authorized version of God's appearance on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20:21. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. These words arrive moments after Moses has first heard God utter the Ten Commandments to him. Richard Elliot Friedman, in his commentary on the Torah, translates, And Moses went over to the nimbus where God was. Everett Fox, in his translation from the Hebrew, Inspired by Martin Buber's and Franz Rosenzweig's German renders it, and Moshe approached the fog where God was. 
commenting RFL, frequently used in conjunction with Anon, cloud. Darkness, nimbus, fog, cloud, a language of bewilderment, trouble. St. Jerome, in his Vulgate translation from the fourth century, rendered the word as caliginum, for, from caliga uh, for darkness, gloom, and from caligo, to becloud, to darken, to make dizzy. In his epistles, Dionysius wrote, Divina caligo lux est inaccessa quam inhabitare Deus perhibitur, which means the divine darkness is unapproachable light in which God is said to dwell. In reference to this passage, alchemist Thomas Vaughan in Lumen de Lumine, a work from 1651 comments, that which is above all degree of intelligence is a certain infinite inaccessible fire or light. Dionysius calls it caligo divina because it is invisible and incomprehensible. Thomas's twin brother Henry, aspiring to the indefinite, puts it more directly himself in the night. There is in God, some say, a deep but dazzling darkness, as men here say it is late and dusky, because they see not all clear. Oh, for that night where I and him might live invisible and dim. Imagine Moses then in the act of giving the law to Israel, the Israelites are terrified. Seismic upheavals have anticipated God's commandments. Their souls are quaking. And all the people saw thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. In a fright, the people ask Moses to speak on their behalf, not wanting to confront this potent divinity themselves. Telling them not to be afraid, he suddenly steps into the dizzying thick darkness where the Lord speaks to his prophet, instructing him to erect an altar whereon Moses and his kind will make sacrifices, for which God promises to bless them forever after. Moses' contact with God in this moment stands for the symbolic acts of the religious poet, though the atmosphere is gloomy and ominous and the location strenuous to get to, the divine is present and there is the prospect of law, covenant, revelation, and genuine power. Thick and Dazzling Darkness is a book about the role religion and a religious worldview play in the work of a handful of modern and contemporary poets working in North America. It's also about writing and reading religious poetry in a secular age. It's commonplace to hear that we live in a secular age, but what does this, what does this really mean? More to the point, what does it mean for the poets who are the subject of the book? These poets are Frank Samperi, Robinson Jeffers, Jeffrey Hill, Robert Duncan, Lissa Wolzak, uh, Fanny Howe, uh, Nathaniel Mackey, Joseph Donahue, and Pam Ream. So what does it mean for them to write religious poetry, which is to say to choose to write religious poetry in a secular culture in which religion has ceased to carry the meaning, both cultural and literary, that it has in the past. So the purpose of this book is to discuss the role religion plays in the poetry these poets have written and also to place their religious worldviews in contexts, uh, in context, one that includes both spiritual and literary historical meanings. So my title serves to prepare the way I'm imagining into this, this material. And those are the opening two paragraphs of uh, the introduction. And they, they supply you with a sense of the book through the title. Um, this 
metaphor of thick and dazzling darkness. So in combining Moses' experience of the thick darkness in whose umbers the divine might be encountered with Henry Vaughan's expression of the dazzling darkness whose brightness dims the light of one's life in comparison, I wanted to provide an archetype for the religious poet in a secular age. Like Moses approaching the burning bush, blinded by the unconsuming fire of the divine imagination, but also daunted and moved by the scintillating gloom surrounding. And also a language for the experience and its emanating meanings, a kind of tawil of the dark light of creation. In Avicenna and the visionary recital, Henry Corbin defines tawil, which is the Islamic practice of mystical or esoteric interpretation as not only exegesis of a text, but exegesis of the soul. Elsewhere, Corbin indicates that the literal meaning of tawil is led back, which is to say, led back from outer meanings to inner regions corresponding to it. In this respect, perhaps, the archetype of Moses leads us back to the corresponding inner meanings of whatever a thick and dazzling darkness might be. So rather than rehearse any more of my argument uh, here, I'd like to provide an anthology of four of the poets I write about in Thick and Dazzling Darkness, three Catholics and one Protestant poet, to give you a sense of their lives and works and how the writing of religious poetry reinvigorates poetry in a secular age. While I cover several poets in the book, uh, this anthology will focus on uh, Frank Samperi, Fanny Howe, uh, Joseph Donahue, and uh, Pam Ream. And I'm going to quote from their, from their poetry and what remains here, um, but I brought a number of their books uh, and put them on the table. So if you're curious afterwards and want to take a peep at some of those, some of those books, I encourage you to do so. So... I'm going to address the poets in that order. So Frank Samperi belongs in the category of the overlooked talents of American poetry of the last 50 years. He wrote his best poetry in the 1960s and saw it published partially in the 1970s. By the end of the 70s, he had nearly entirely faded from the publishing scene, living in obscurity until his death in 1991. Born in Brooklyn in 1933, Sam Perry, an orphan and an autodidact, as a young man sought out Louis Zukofsky, the great second-generation modernist. Letters between them date back to the time Sam Perry was 24. The older poet mentored him, connecting Sam Perry eventually with Sid Corman, uh, a legendary publisher of the second half of the 20th century, who became champion and his champion and publisher in origin. St. Perry was a fixture of Origin's second series, presented with the likes of Zukofsky, Ian Hamilton Finlay, Gary Snyder, Lorene Niedeker, William Bronk, and of course, Corman himself. These connections led to the publication of an untitled trilogy of books in the early 1970s by Grossman Mushinsha, comprised of the Prefiguration, Quadrifarium, and Lumen Gloria, these books collected 18 pamphlets and small books Sam Perry had written in the late 1960s. The trilogy of books designed and printed in Japan, it's strikingly beautiful, as you'll see uh, if you're curious afterwards, uh, featuring rich and unusual stone prints by Will Peterson on the dust jacket, as well as oblong pages, making for one of the handsomest sets of books of American poetry from that period. I discovered the trilogy um, in the summer of 1996. 
I'd been primed by John Taggart's essay, A Spiritual Definition of Poetry, which I had read for the first time that spring. I'd never heard of Sam Perry before uh, reading Taggart's essay. The samples and the samples of, of the poetry in the, es the essay contained were, were alluring, to say the least. But it didn't prepare me for what awaited me when I found a paperback copy of Quadrifarium in the book sale at a literature conference in Maine that June. The poetry in that book for me was transformative. I felt the hinge on a door long stuck shut, suddenly generously oiled. Here was work in the idiom of the new American poetry that was not only open to the spiritual but explicitly religious in a way that spoke to another tradition with which I wrestled, namely Catholicism. The book quickly became a treasure. And in the days before internet book searches, I devoted myself to finding copies of the opening and closing volumes in the Tercet, the prefig prefiguration in Lumen Gloria, as quickly as I could, locking into a copy of the first at a used bookstore in Chicago, but spending more money than I really had at the time for the other. Uh, no matter, <laughs> says the bibliophile. The books were necessary to have and their va value magnified in my possession. So I wouldn't call Frank Samperi a mystic, but he is a mystical poet, one who avails mystical techniques and language in his poetry. Mysticism does not define the limit of his poetry, but Sam Perry's raids on the articulate are visional, angelophanic, to use one of Henry Corbin's favorite words, which he uh, defines as divine anthropomorphous on the plane of the spiritual universe, the human form or divine humanity of the angelic world. Sam Perry is seeing things, putting them into words. Nevertheless, he might agree that mystical speech is subordinated to and ultimately unraveled by the divine. The poet fixes his eye on the unfixable, immutable, always hidden God beyond the Ptolemaic universe he imagines himself in and transmits the vision of the cosmos he gazes at and the words he has at hand. Language pales, but it also excites, uplifts. St. Perry's is a poetry of spiritual recovery, not a formal creation, nor even of a participation with that creation. The unitive power he aspires to is above and beyond him, not something emanating from him or created by him. It is something he receives and reflects, and in reflection, something he gives. In his poetry, St. Perry would restore us to the undivided, glorified body of God. So late in Lumen Gloria, he writes, then the dwelling of the angel in the soul, or rather the odor, sign, of the dwelling, continuing, habituating the man to the daily, drawing out radiance, preparing, rendering, transparent, the surrounding, the universe, the aureole, receiving truest ray. To what is that provocative word odor attached in the lines above? To the angel? To the perfume of the indwelling of the angel in the soul? The word instantly locates the, sets of thought, the set of thoughts in the actual, habituating the man. Receiving the truest ray might serve as a motto for St. Perry's poetic wish in his surroundings, in the universe, in the angelic aureole. Receptivity to the divine happens in the human sensorium, smell, sight, feeling. Quadrifarium, that's the second volume in the trilogy, is a term drawn from a more peculiar source. It's a Latin adverb meaning fourfold, 
which Samperi uses to refer specifically to Dante's four-tiered interpretive approach to scripture, which the poet himself drew from his readings of St. Aquinas and St. Augustine. In Dante's letter to his patron Congrande, he describes how scripture can be understood polysemously on the literal, the allegorical, the moral or tropological, and the anagogical or mystical levels. Furthermore, in the same letter, Dante informs Congrande that his Commedia also operates using a threefold pattern in its form, from the three canticles of Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso to the individual cantos in each part down to the rhymed musical tercets. In a note on the dust jacket to Quadrifarium, it, says you how, it tells you something how obscure a poet is if you have to go to the notes on the dust jacket to find statements from the poet. And, and this, what I'm about to read you, is so obscure. Just wait. So in the note on the dust jacket to Quadrifarium, Sam Perry mysteriously distills all this to say, the relationship bears a single experience, one of the intelligences. That is, at one end implied, the prefiguration, at the other established, Quadrifarium. Therefore, the emotion companionship. However, Quadrifarium carries with it the descent, book, canzone, song, that is, eternity, image, gift, which is to say that the collapse gets defined in a more detailed manner. That's him writing about his own poetry. That's insane. I'll just say that. So imagine then, placed atop the fourfold pattern of discernment, a triune pattern of poetic intention, which when turned like a geometrically shaped dial, generates a kaleidoscope of patterns that becomes the work itself. I think that's what he's doing to get the poetry. By informing the melancholic actual of his observing eye with visional angelophony, Sam Perry in his poetry ascends a ladder he makes from it, beginning the climb to God on the long itinerarium that marks his work. The place where I see this happening most vividly is in one of the poems toward the end of the triune, the sequence that begins Quadrifarium, the entirety of which I increasingly regard as the heart and soul of Sam Perry's accomplishment, and this poem in particular. You'll notice Sam Perry's a bit of a minimalist. There's, he likes abstraction. So allow yourself, suspend yourself in the abstracted void for a moment here. Spirit, the spirit, and identification. Water and image significantly subject. The revelation of man. I'm sorry, the revelation, the man. Resolution, the projection. The man, another, an extension, the one below. If point, no boundary. Then point, invalid. Metaphorical, the man, reference. The universe, creation. Eternity, image, use. Relational, fire. Plain, angel, visional, plain other, close, far, approximations, speed apperceptive, rest background, the relation, circular, each to each, however, differential, integral, appetitive, the noetic, self, return, pilgrimage, image, eternity. The beginning lines of the poem are incantational. 
building momentum through the Latinate words revelation, resolution, projection, extension. In this poem, man is the reference point, generically in the usage common to Sam Perry's time, but also specifically in terms of himself, the poet envisioning the spirit with whom he is identifying. The man reference the universe creation, sets up a typological comparison Sam Perry's verse thrives on. As man is the reference point, so the universe is the creative expansion, leading to three richly utile words in Sam Perry's lexicon, eternity, image, use. All three relational to the visional angel speeding apperceptively through the lines of the poem, which directs our attention to the simultaneous differential and integral unity of the divine reality the poem itself invokes. It ends with a beatific reversion to source, self-return, followed by an utterly characteristic Samparian line, pilgrimage, image, eternity. The image of eternity is pilgrimage. All beings, all life in the spirit strive toward integral, differential holiness. Just as the word pilgrimage, so Sam Perry makes us see, has an image in its heart. So that's Sam Perry. Fanny Howe. Fanny Howe was born in 1940 in Buffalo, New York, but grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the daughter of an Irish stage actress and a constitutional law professor. She grew up in a fertile, artistic, and intellectual environment. Her older sister is the poet uh, Susan Howe, whom some, whose work some of you may know. Well, I know at least a few of you know, looking out uh, to the crowd. In the 1960s, Howe became involved with political activist and writer Carl Senna, whose father was Mexican and whose mother was African-American. In the racially divisive atmosphere of Boston at the time, this was especially transgressive, and Howe soon found herself ostracized even from the liberal enclaves she had grown up in. Howe and Senna were drawn together because of shared creative, political, and philosophical interests. They married, and in quick succession, Howe gave birth to three children by him. Senna was Catholic. His mother was devout. She attended daily mass on her way to her job at the courthouse in downtown Boston. We had the children baptized, writes Howe, and I began attending mass with my mother-in-law, hovering at the back of the church and feeling myself excluded and estranged from the rituals. Nonetheless, Howe continued to attend mass and eventually, quoting her, grew increasingly comfortable sitting at mass and participating in everything but the Eucharist for many years. But even as she became more comfortable in the mass, her life in Boston was fraught by racism toward her children and by the poverty that afflicted her, in part because the kind of activist life she and her husband were committed to, but also because she felt herself denied any opportunities by white-dominated Boston since she was involved with a black man and her children were mixed race. Boston, she tells us, recalcitrant and class divided, was a poor choice to live as a mixed couple. After her marriage to Senna dissolved, uh, Howe found herself drawn increasingly to the church, in part because sitting in the pew at Mass, she felt a sense of community she otherwise lacked. This included things like help with childcare among mothers in similar straits to her own. And before long, Howe converted. My sense is that her conversion concentrated her interests in misfortune, especially the plight of the misfortunate. And her work includes more tramps, a word she uses unironically than any poet in English since Wordsworth. So many tramps in her work. 
Um, so the misfortune is one of her interests, and the other is grace, the daunting mystery of God's love freely given. In one of her greatest sequences entitled, In the Spirit There Are No Accidents, Howe writes, God is already ahead and waiting. The future is full. One steps timidly over the world. The other is companionable. The house is there. The door is there. Others. But for you, they make no sound when you're so far. I know the bench is by the pond tomorrow, when I can follow the streets to it by heart. Yes, streets. Yes, hearts. Night walk of faith. Chromosomes live in the past. The land is an incarnation, like a hand on a hand on an arm asking, do you know me? And here's another. Sister Poverty, welcome to my cloister. All that lowers must draw close. In the world of wretches and the exploited, of the accidentally destroyed, the strike of each heart in the distant body ups the odds that there's a why, but why? To these, I'll add some samples from one of Howe's most important writings, uh, in my opinion, a poem essay entitled Catholic. It's a poem in that most of it is written in verse, but it's an essay in that she published it not in a poetry collection, but in The Wedding Dress, which is a collection of her essays. Catholic is strung on tensions that characterize Howe's poetry, namely an existential flatness of affect that coalesces into aphoristic lyrical statements often clothed in mystery. Yet the piece involves essayistic elements as well, in a way suggestively more confessional than her poetry ever really seems. The opening two sections are illustrative of these features, the aphoristic lyricism and the confessional quality, written during a period she was commuting every day from Los Angeles to La Jolla, where she was teaching a time in which she is uh, a time in which she has elsewhere described herself as miserable. What can you do after Easter? Every turn of the tire is a still point on the freeway. If you stand in one and notice what is around you, it is a pileup of the permanent. The churn of creation is a constant upward and downward action, simultaneous, eternal. If you keep thinking there is only an ahead and a behind, you are missing the side to side, which give evidence to the lie that you are moving progressively. If everything is moving at the same time, nothing is moving at all. Time is more like a failed resurrection than a measure of passage. That's, I think, poignant for anyone who's ever been stuck in traffic, especially someone who has to do it regularly. Here's the second section. The drive from the I-5 along Melrose to Sycamore, the drive up La Brea to Franklin, and then uh, and right, then left up to Mulholland, the drive along Santa Monica to the rise up to the right and sunset, the drive along sunset east past the billboard of the man on a saddle, the drive from the 405 up onto La Cienaga and the view of the hills, the difference between Nirvana and Nihil. In Catholic... Despite the spiritual struggle she describes, Howe is engaging in apologetics. Part of her profession of faith involves declaring her love for St. Thomas Aquinas. This is Howe again. He was concerned with being, not doing. And his love for the world was so intense, it infused his thought with compassion for all things. He has been compared to Confucius, Shankara, phenomenology. He makes it possible for some people now to remain Catholic, 
despite enormous misgivings and a consciousness of the church's bad acts. He's not the only one who makes it possible, but he is an important one because he is still considered an angelic doctor of the church, one whose thought remains foundational in Catholicism. You can find his mind there, waiting, permitting, guiding right into modern day life. He saw each person as an important piece of a magnificent puzzle made by and for God. So to whom is how apologizing in Catholic? In part, she's providing a means for her readers, many of whom, belonging to secularized, poetic, and academic circles, are baffled by her Catholicism to understand her, her faith. She's giving them an opportunity to do that. Yes, she admits the church is responsible for unpleasant and even grievously wrong acts, and it's impossible not to be conscious of these acts, even while remaining Catholic. And yet, even as it's possible to believe that the apology is offered to unbelieving readers of contemporary poetry, it is just as likely, and perhaps more important creatively, that she is directing this apology to herself. In another essay, in The Wedding Dress, How Wonders... But what will happen to language now that the word God has fizzled into the existential absurd so that past and present are buried in instant parries and thrusts from the emptiness ahead? In Catholic, how seeks an answer to the emptiness of the absurd to the existential absence she finds abiding in the word God? That answer arrives mysteriously but repeatedly for how in the form of the Eucharist, a vision, of which she, a vision with which she concludes Catholic. As she struggles with the daily process of soul erasure, as she makes her way in the world, buying material, selling her time, existing in the temporary infinity of her dreadful commute, how summons a virtue in paying attention to suffering and its redemption in communal recognition, something the Mass ritualizes in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Everybody is invited to the table. Or so she takes heart. I take this concluding passage to be the flaming sacred core of Howe's faith, a genuinely moving and sincere glimpse of paradise. She writes, this is why I keep moving and only stop for the Eucharist in a church where there are sick, vomiting, maimed, screaming, destroyed, violent, useless, happy, pious, fraudulent, hypocritical, lying, thieving, hating, drunk, rich, poverty-stricken people. In one of her interviews, Howe confessed that she felt the taking of the Eucharist was like eating beauty. So now, Joseph Donahue and Pam Ream. I'm doing them together, as you'll see. Joseph Donahue and Pam Ream are two contemporary American poets. Donahue was born in 1954 in Dallas, where he spent his early childhood before moving to Worcester, Massachusetts, back to the family's ancestral home following the assassination of John F. Kennedy when Dallas began to feel like it wasn't such a good place to be Catholic. That's what he says in one of his poems. Since then, he's lived in New York City, Seattle, and Durham, North Carolina, among other places. And Reem was born in 1967 in rural Pennsylvania. Uh, she lives in Manhattan at present. Uh, I, sh I feel like I should confess this before going on, which is that Reem is the, Pam as I call her, is the godmother to uh, one of our kids. So there's a personal connection. <clears throat> it's like having a, it's like having a, a, a fairy godmother 
sort of uh, spirit witch who lives in Manhattan and sends peculiar little packages to our son. So Donahue, of course, comes from a Catholic family, Reem from a Protestant family. I treat their work together in the final chapter of my book entitled Apocalypticism, A Way Forward in Poetry. The apocalypse I'm envisioning was foretold in an incendiary editorial authored by Lou Daly, who is Reem's husband, Alan Gilbert, Kristen Prevalet, and Reem herself in the inaugural issue of Apex of the M from spring 1994. And I brought the copy of the journal here, if you're curious to look at it. And this is the journal they edited from Buffalo, where they were all associated with the poetics program at SUNY Buffalo. Reem alone was not enrolled as a student at the time. Actually, she never was a student there. It's because Daly was in the program. Donahue had some of his poetry published in the second issue of this journal. That's part of the connection here. Apex of the M was an unusual and spirited journal to have emerged from Buffalo in the early 1990s, which was best known as one of the primary stations of then-emergent academic language poetry, led by Charles Bernstein, who was teaching there at the time. In contrast to the prevailing Marxist ideology and notions of the fragmentation of language and subject in the time of late capitalism that one attributes to language poetry, the editors of Apex of the M wanted conspicuously to connect their enterprise to notions of the spirit, claiming in the provocative editorial of primary importance in this shift to move away from the current state of the art is a commitment to heterogeneity and alterity to the unknown and the unspeakable as material influx leading to love. Defiantly romantic in tenor, the editors excoriated mainstream workshop poetry as deplorable, while insisting that avant-garde poets, in giving priority to language itself, had committed themselves emptily to the conventions of innovation, leading, quoting again from the editorial, leading to the socially inept dead end of autonomous forms. Why then should we not resist equally, asked the editors, both the suburban vacuity of mainstream poetics in verse and the avant-garde po poetics of language itself, with its force field-like purgation of radical alterity and non-linguistic material influx and receptivity from what we heed and write. Instead of these, the editors called for a radical transparency of language that would resist solipsism or the incorporation of the other into the problem of the poem, instead seeking a poetry of the conscious ear, one of Emily Dickinson's definitions of spirit. The editorial concludes with this claim. It's a doozy. Only in direct proportion to the way in which speaking disarms us, making us irreplaceable, on the path of an urgency by which we must, each in our way, remain overcome, will the faint strains of an apocalypse of utterance guide all hierarchy and mediacy into place, overwhelmed by a spiritual force, rendering them powerless against a destruction more irreversible than any fall in the future of a suffusion almost immediately indistinguishable from peace. I love that. I'm just going to confess. And I think that's pure Lou Daly. That's my, my understanding. One of the four editorial writers. So I see both Donahue and Ream as apocalyptic poets. How then to characterize the difference in their poetry? 
In his work on the historical Jesus, John Dominic Crossan distinguishes between apocalyptic eschatology and sapiential eschatology, both to be found in the New Testament. Apocalyptic eschatology, quoting Crossan, announces the apocalypse of imminent and cataclysmic divine intervention to restore peace and justice to a disordered world. Sapiential eschatology emphasizes sapientia, wisdom, of knowing how to live here and now today so that God's present power is forcibly evident to all. Apocalyptic eschatology is world negation, stressing imminent divine intervention. We wait for God to act. Sapiential eschatology is world negation, emphasizing immediate divine imitation. God waits for us to act. The former is the message of John the Baptist, the latter that of Jesus. In my sense, Donahue's poetic eschatology is apocalyptic. Reams is sapiential. For the last 20 years or more, Donahue has been writing an epic serial poem entitled Terra Lucida. The title means Earth of Light or Land of Light. Henry Corbin uses the name Terra Lucida in a few instances. Donahue is likeliest to have gotten his title from Corbin's book, The Man of Light in Iranian Sufism, where Corbin, speaking of the Mundus Imaginalis, which is an intermediary realm in which the worldly self confronts its angelic self, a concrete world of archetype figures, apparitional forms, angels of species and of individuals. That's Corbin. And in the same piece, Corbin declares that in Manichaeism, there is in the earth of light, terra lucida, situated in the kingdom of light, it is governed by a divinity of eternal light surrounded by 12 splendors. So Donahue's Terra Lucida is a realm of memory, intuition, vision, and sacred knowledge keyed to experience and expressed with uncanny lyric gifts. So consider this hierophany from, from Terra Lucida, framed by doubts and meditations on doubt on the one side and a description of early Christian heresy on the other. The early Christian heresy he's talking about is uh, docetism. Writes Donahue, <clears throat> A mortal is about to see the majesty of the throne, though in the stream of clouds it may be only the foot of the throne, or a snarl of white mist in the field in the first of the sunlight. Nonetheless, an heretical beauty floods the ranks of the world. The black still pours down, but the peaks break free. Branches aglow with a wet flame, sky a deep violet surges, Behind the charcoal mountain, where the rain is still falling on a single gorge of brightness, after the sudden storm of the first night of my death, angelic tormentors are silent. The archive of what is stands open. While in the ruins of an orchard, with its stretch of tree stumps like the broken guards of a once sublime palace, birds lie quietly on the grass. Nonetheless, a heretical beauty floods the ranks of the world. An interesting pun whiffs from ranks. Donahue is invoking the ranks of the angelic hierarchy imagined by Dionysius and Rilke, just as he is alluding to the rank and file of the world below. But isn't there a smell here? The rank odor of the human world below, which, despite its stench, streams with a beauty from the light emanating from God's eternal throne? If one thing characterizes the active imagination Donahue 
brings to bear on his poem, it's his desire that the visionary reality he has entered not be merely some dream, but a place of absolute reality. His skill at conveying this feeling seems unmatched by any other contemporary American poet, such that parts of his poem exhibit a simultaneous lightness of touch and gravitational pull, where surrealistic follies vie with imaginal intensities. Here's one of the best examples, in my mind, of Donahue's mastery. One heaven for optics, one for mysticism. And down the hall, idling, on a stage, a string quartet. A hawk shakes the trees as the sun falls over these houses, over these hills, where, since this is California, a father tells his son, there are two kinds of infinities, those that can be counted and those that cannot. And later, at bedtime, his mother will add, and there are those crossed by souls once they have drunk from white cups of magnolia blossom over a sunlit deck in a forest where festive guests toast the abracadabra of zero, as at a low-limbed tree where a path meets the stream, the ghost of two girls wait in the shade for a passerby purer than you, from whom to slice the heart and read in its red the whim of the stars. I'm drowsy, but I don't want to sleep, one girl says to the other. I don't want our marvelous death to be only a dream. The abracadabra of zero. It's that quality of inevitability Donahue manages in these lines, the expression of death as marvelous, and the sense that the heart has in it the whim of the stars that both ventilates and intensifies the apocalypse we get glimpses from in his poetry. Reem is a poet more modest than Donahue, both in terms of her output, which is consistent but on a smaller scale than Donahue's. She writes short lyric poems and has no aspirations toward the epic. And in terms of the work itself, in which modesty is clearly a virtue. A roof is no guarantee that you'll sleep. The unease of premises pins together the curtains at night, waiting for a clearness of purpose. Eating three meals a day, we go to bed hungry. Privacy is not a remedy. We've become separated by efficiencies. Nobody can do anything with a kind of machine person floundering in the dark. It's hard to believe five sparrows were sold for this. Reem's poem hinges on a claim whose critique stems from perception. Here, the sense that our lives are filled with things that make it easier but worse. Reem works in her poems through aphorisms. A roof is no guarantee that you'll sleep, but one she modulates with a resigned disdain that verges on despair. It's hard to believe five sparrows were sold for this. This poem, writes Reem, is about the frustration of living in a culture that separates humans from the natural world. It's a poem that wonders what it means to live among things that I wouldn't consider to be essential to living. The sparrows, she continues, are a reference to Luke 12.6. Reem's principal tool of revelation in her poetry is the anagram. Typically, she identifies a word with some significance to her poem, from out of which she seeks hidden meanings and associations. Certainly, there's a playfulness to her rearrangements of the letters in a word, but there's also a gravity she seems to locate, connecting her practice for me to the exercise of notaricon, the practice in ecstatic Kabbalah of rearranging the letters in the name of God, or in other things, to uplift one's praying mind to a transcendent realm of meaning. 
Behold, a wilderness of voices crying within one. Pursuit, the tension created between proof and devotion. When reveal becomes a lever and you press it, your heart will feel gallantly recreated. In a sense, the exhortation to behold in these lines prompts the poet and reader to look to see that there is a lever hidden in the letters of reveal. Reem's poem Eden might be read as an ars poetica for her anagramic technique, as well as a demonstration of her skills with this method. Endure has an end. You may rue at the outset, but it also has need, and need is an Eden, if you know what I mean. Eden equals need, one and the same, the same, how I hold it. Endure is one of those words of power in Reem's body of work. It locates her feelings of frustration with the world of getting and spending she tolerates and suffers in, but it also suggests the ability to bear something difficult without breaking, the definition of virtue in Reem's poetry. But even endurance has an end, one manifested in need. The hinge of this poem is the ironic intensity of her declaration and discovery that need is an Eden, underscored by the parenthetical aside, which we can read as something said under the breath and meant to be funny or, more likely, as something deadly serious. Do we really know what she means? Probably not. To reinforce, to reinforce her point, she makes plain the equation, Eden equals need, which then allows her to finish the poem with a repetition, the same, and an assertion, how I hold it calling the whole poem into momentary question in that it sounds suddenly as resolved as it does desperate. The mysterious word in Eden is rue, of course. In this poem, it's the residue of letters, sounds left behind after end has been extracted from endure. Ruefulness is sorrow, regret, and grief, an unusual feeling to drive one's work. Reem uses rueful feelings in her poetry the way the fathers of the early Christian church elaborated the concept of penthos. St. Gregory of Nyssa writes, Penthos, in general, is a sorrowful disposition of the soul caused by the privation of something desirable. Irene Househair explains that there is one word that expresses all that is desirable, salvation. Here, then, is the first concept of penthos, mourning for lost salvation, whether one's own or that of others. Rue, mourning for lost salvation, is what we get when the need for Eden is extracted from the word endure. I'd like to conclude this talk by invoking William James, whose specter in many ways hovered over me as I conducted this work. In the conclusions to the varieties of religious experience, Having presented extensive case studies that validate the pathological and mystical aspects of his subject, but in a moment of exultant resignation, James confesses, the whole drift of my education goes to persuade me that the world of our present consciousness is only one out of, uh, is only one out of many worlds of consciousness that exist, and that those other worlds must contain experiences which have a meaning for our life also, and that Although in the main their experience and those of this world keep discreet, yet the two become continuous at certain points and higher energies filter in. Religious poetry filters the higher energies in. 
As readers, we seek these energies, drawing power from what this poetry releases into us. No matter what the age declares of itself, no matter how absent of spiritual truth and tendency you operate, there is beneath the loquacious level of your rationalism, and there is beneath the loquacious level that your rationalism inhabits, a deeper level to your nature where intuitions and occult convolutions gather and where, even deeper, a darkness emanates the material of creation. It's poetry that narrates and demonstrates that dark energy, an unconsuming fire in which our imaginations come most intensely to life. Thank you very much. Thank you.